Hey, welcome to ACF Church, and we're so glad that you're with us watching this message online. And our hope is that it would encourage you to be more like Jesus and walk closely with Him as an apprentice of Christ. And our hope is to give away all of these resources for free as much as possible. It takes a lot of time and energy and people to make that happen. And if you'd like to support the mission of God financially for ACF Church, you can go to acfak.org and you can give there. Now enjoy the Word of God proclaimed. married two weeks after I turned 18, so really young. Um, And then I was married for 16 years. And over that time, we had six children, two girls, four boys. And it was pretty rocky, actually, from the beginning. Um, And lonely and confusing. And... um, The journey was hard with a lot of um, just anger with what was going on. There was a lot of betrayal and... I had struggled to go back to counseling because I had been burned by counselors over the years, but um, so I started seeing her and she worked with me on boundaries and how that's not mean and how um, it could be helpful overall. Um, So as I learned boundaries more um, and he was able to control me less and less, he started to ramp up in other ways, um, would become more abusive in other ways and would take it out on the kids. Leading up to the divorce, there was an incident that happened that crossed a boundary and Without going into too much detail with it, um, the boundary was, if this happens, we're at minimum gonna go to a hotel for the night, uh, the kids and I. So uh, we went to a hotel, and then when we came back the next day and I went to talk to him, he got physically abusive, and the neighbors called the police, and the police came out um, and said, we can't press charges because there's no bruises, there's no cuts, but you need to go file a restraining order. So I did and got a lawyer. In my mind, it wasn't even, I'm filing divorce. But one step after the other, just that's what ended up. And I had peace through that whole process, which is interesting because I never wanted to be divorced. Spent a lot of years trying to figure out how to not be so angry, how to deal with the anger, how to how to forgive. And that was its own journey because people were telling me, you just need to forgive. And like, I want to, what does that mean? What does it even look like? And um, God was faithful to walk me through that. And I do forgive him now. I mean, obviously pain is still there from it. When I think about it, um, those times hurt. It was really lonely. But um, the beauty of that time was that God was showing me his heart for us in it all. Um, as much as I longed for relationship and I longed for closeness and for that to be good, God was showing me how much he longs for us and wants that with us. And I don't think I would have seen that otherwise. Um,
we talk about the fruits of the spirit and how he grows that in us and those things I've, I've started to see like the love and the joy joy and sorrow can coexist and they have to in this world um, and to just learn how to really have the emotions that you're feeling and it doesn't have to dictate your life um, as far as like you can feel sad and not hurt people and Actually, I use that sadness to see what's important to me in my life. You know, I'm sad because I lost that relationship because relationship matters to me. And that's beautiful to be able to find what's important to you. Looking at the situation, my ex-husband, I hurt for him. Like I have compassion for him and the brokenness that brought him to where he's at and what he struggles with. And I want good for him. Um, and healing for him. And I've seen God make positive changes. I have seen God lead it in his hand and how he's walked with me through it all. Um, even in times where it felt really lonely, like I can look back and I can see where he's been there. I can see how he's grown me. I can see how he's shown me his heart. And I don't know, that's like part of the beauty in the ashes. Just thanks, Samantha, for being honest and uh, transparent and vulnerable in her story. Uh, like Pastor Brian said, uh, we're, we're getting in deep today. We're, if you're new to ACF, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so grateful that you're with us today. And uh, we have been on a journey over the last several weeks, and we're going to continue on this journey of walking through the book of 1 Corinthians and this has been such a, a, a powerful uh, book for us as a church. Uh, we're calling the series Hold Fast because it's about holding fast to our faith. And what we see as we've been going through this journey is there's this, this church in this, this uh, city called Corinth. And it's all these new Christians, all these new believers. right? This Jesus moment, this Jesus thing has happened. And now people are coming to faith. And, and it's, it's happening in this, this very influential uh, city. And you could almost compare this city to like Las Vegas, just with so much entertainment, so much uh, uh, sexual ethic kind of coming out of this place. Just, it's this crazy town, and you have this small little church forming of these Jesus followers. And there's all sorts of craziness, craziness happening in the church, and Paul is addressing all of it. And so we've been on this journey, and what we've seen so far as this craziness that's going on in this church in Corinth, it kind of looks a lot like today. It's not like the book is irrelevant anymore, right? Like, we have figured this out. We don't deal with this stuff anymore. No, it is every single week has just been kind of like, man, yes, we deal with this, and I deal with this, and we've had such good conversation so far. And so this conversation continues, and Paul, he's actually jumping into this topic of divorce and remarriage. And, and before we get into the, the meat of the text today, and if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 8. If you have your phones, you can pull those out and go to your Bible app. Um, but before we do that, I'm just going to read one little piece of 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. This is how Paul starts this section out. Okay, he says this, Now in response to the matters you wrote about. 
Now in response to the matters you wrote about. So, so far for the first six chapters, he's just, going, he's just riffing on stuff that he's heard is happening in the church. Uh, there's some pretty crazy things happening in the church. And he's just been like, hey, I heard this. You got to deal with this. Let's take care of this. And now he goes, okay, now you've been asking some questions. Now to the matters that you are asking me about. And when we look at this book in, uh, in, in the Bible, and, and we, many of the books, uh, especially in the New Testament, these letters that we see, what we realize is we're just getting half of a conversation. So stuff has been going on in this church, and people are writing to Paul. Paul, this is happening. You should talk about this. What about this, Paul? What about this? And he's like, okay, now to the matters that you're asking about. And the first matter that they're asking about is actually this issue of marriage and divorce. And, and what we have happening here, this is really interesting, and a lot of people don't realize this, with this church in Corinth and all these other churches that are popping up around uh, the area of, 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 of where Christ was, what we, what we see happening for the first time are not just like people who didn't believe in God believing in God, right? The Bible calls like the Jews and the Gentiles. But what we really have are like waves of people coming out of paganism and, and coming to faith, mostly Greeks and Romans. But what we have are these people who, who are pagans, they were idol worshipers, and they don't have any background of like honoring God. Like the Jews that come to Jesus, like they, they kind of get it, right? They've been waiting for Messiah to show up, and they just connect the dots that Jesus and Messiah are the same person. But these pagans coming to faith, right, like, they don't know the law, they don't know the Ten Commandments, they don't know the stories of, like, Passover and, and Israel walking through the Red Sea and David and the, they, they don't have any of this history, they just have their paganism, their idol worship. And so as they're walking away from that and walking into the church, it gets a little messy, Right? It gets a little messy of like, yesterday I'm over here worshiping idols and going to temples and sleeping with temple prostitutes. To, today I'm a follower of Jesus. Now what? Now what do we do? Is there like temple prostitutes at this church or how do we do this here? Right? Like it's, it's all new to them. They don't know. And so this is why Paul's addressing these things. It, it's really important to understand that these people are coming with no background of like Christianity or anything. And, and, and it gets messy. And I would just say this. A church that doesn't have any messiness in it, and I think that's a problem. I think that's a sign that the, 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 the lost are not coming to Jesus, because when the lost come to Jesus, they show up, and they bring what they know. I love it. I've, I've heard literally in the lobbies of ACF Church before, like people talking about sermons, and they're like, that sermon was so bleeping awesome today. God really touched me, and I'm like, man, I love that you're excited for Jesus. Uh, Let's talk about some stuff here, but I love it. Like, this is good. Like, there's messiness happening, and messiness is a good thing. It means people are coming to Jesus, and they're wrestling through, man, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's, that's where we're at today. That's where we're at today. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 7, starting in verse 8. Again, Paul is addressing their questions. He says, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry. Since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, 
But if she does, she, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. This is a really interesting passage here that Paul starts talking about. And before I really dive into the meat of what I want to talk about today, there's this interesting thing that he starts off with verse 8, where he says, To the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. And what he means by that is single. It's interesting. Paul's saying, if you're not married, it's better to remain single. Why does he say that? Well, later on in this very chapter, what he starts saying is like, look, if you're married, you have to think about your family. It's a good thing, right? Consider your family. But if you're single, all you need to think about is doing the work of God. All you need to think about is doing the work of God. And Mike, as I was just kind of reading through this, I was like, man, is that how I live my life? Is that how I lived my life when I was single? Like, I'm just obsessed about doing the work of God. And whether you're single in the room or married, that should be the first thing we think about on our minds when we wake up in the morning. Before what, what I got to do for my job, before I got to drive the kids around everywhere, before whatever it is, like, are we obsessed with doing the work of God? Paul literally says, it's better to remain unmarried and not get married so you can, comp you can complete even more work for God. Like, that's just this way of thinking of the kingdom of God. Like, man, there's people out there who don't know Jesus, and I need to get them the word of God. And, and I was just convicted by that. But then Paul goes on, and he says, like, ladies, don't get divorced, or don't leave your husbands. And if you do, try to get reconciled. Husbands, don't divorce your wives. And he goes on all this thing. So we're going to talk about what it means, what is, what is the biblical understanding of divorce and remarriage? Very quiet in the room right now. Very quiet in the room right now. Before I go on any further, I just want, I, ho I hope you hear this. I want to say this. I hope you hear grace today. I hope you hear redemption today. I hope you hear restoration today. I hope you hear these things. And I hope the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. But before we get to the passage of divorce and remarriage and all this stuff, I think there's a, a more basic question that we all need to answer. Everyone in this room, everyone watching online right now, there is a question that we all need to have answered, and that is this. What is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? Do you ever think about that? Single people, if you desire to be married one day, have you ever thought about, well, what is the purpose of marriage? Married people, before you got married, did this cross your mind at all? I'll tell you what, I got married when I was 20 years old. Uh, what is the purpose of marriage was not on my mind. I had other things on my mind. And what is the purpose of marriage was not one of them. I think it's something that we typically don't really think about. 
And uh, over the last several years, decades, I've had the privilege of meeting with young married couples or young, even young engaged couples and, and kind of walk through some mentorship of getting married with them. And over the years, I've learned to ask this question. People come into my office, and they're excited to meet, and they sit down. I'm like, hey, tell me, how did you get engaged? Tell me your engagement story. Everyone loves to share their engagement story. And they share their engagement story. Well, tell me how you met. We saw, talked through some questions, and I'm like, okay, I have a question for you guys. Why are you getting married? The young, engaged couple typically like, wait, what? What do you mean, why are we getting married? Is that a question you need to ask? Did you just not hear our engagement story, how beautiful it was? I mean, the hot air balloon, the sun was setting right behind it perfectly. What do you mean, why are we getting married? It's a question I've learned to ask because I think it's so important. Oftentimes, when I ask the question, what I, what I get, and, and probably where I was when I was young, is, well, we love each other. You know, why are we getting married? We love each other. Sometimes I, I, I hear, like, they make me happy. Sometimes I hear, like, oh, well, we have similar dreams in life. We're headed the same direction. We both really want to have a family. I love this one. They complete me. They complete. Why are we good? Because they complete me. See, two halves, it's just like, oh, they complete me. Right? And these are good things, right? These are good things. But here's what we need to understand these things are not good things to be a foundation of marriage. They're not good foundational things. Because what happens when one day you wake up and all of a sudden it's like, I actually don't know if I love them anymore. What happens when you wake up and you're like, yeah, they're not really completing me. What happens when you wake up and you're like, yeah, we kind of have different dreams about life now. See, while these things are really good, they're not a good foundation. We need to understand that our marriages have a purpose, and that purpose is bigger than us. And so as we talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage and all these things today, I want to start with this question, what is marriage? I want to look at scripture. I want to look at what are the biblical reasons we see God designed, created, gave us marriage. See, marriage comes from God. Marriage is not an institutionalized thing. It's not like, well, the government says we have to do it, so we got to do it. No, no, no. Marriage comes from God. It is given to us. It was designed by God. And so I want to look at why God gave us marriage. And when we look at it, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. You see, the first reason that we see, uh, 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 the first biblical reason of marriage is that it is for a helper. The first biblical reason for marriage is helper. So let's start at the beginning. First we have Adam. He's alone. He's been created and he's in the garden. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. I'm going to jump to verse 18 now. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So when, when God designs women, and, and the intention was always going to be to marry them, 
the first thing he says is it's not good for man to be alone. I will design a helper. See, the problem with man being alone was not loneliness, it was workload. What? What? You're blowing my mind right now. Think about it. The problem with man being alone was not loneliness. He had God with him right there. He had perfect relationship with the God of the universe. Sin has not entered the picture yet. He did not need anything. You say that, like, if you're single, you're complete. Why? Because you have complete relationship with the God of the universe. Marriage does not complete you. A marriage was not going to complete man. He didn't need it. He had God. But he had a massive workload. God put him in the middle of this garden. He's supposed to work the garden. And then what I didn't read is then like God brings every animal of the earth to man. And whatever man calls them, that's what they're going to be. He's got a lot to do. And he's trying to work it out. And God's like, hey, it's not good that he's alone. I will make a helper fit for him, right? Like he had helpers. He's got like his dog sitting here. It's a good helper, but he's not getting the workload done. He's part of the workload, right? He needs a helper. This is why, this is one of the first purposes of marriage. It wasn't loneliness. The problem was that there was too much work for one person to accomplish. See, man's immediate need on earth wasn't companionship or a lover. Now, his wife becomes a companion, and she becomes a lover, and that is a gift from God. But that was not the immediate need. The first purpose we see for marriage is to help each other accomplish the work of God. That is the first foundational piece of marriage, is that we are to help each other accomplish the work of God. It go, when we understand this idea of marriage and this foundational piece of marriage, what ends up happening is our view of marriage goes from what pleases me, what kind of person would please me, to, to what will help me fulfill the purpose of God. As I'm thinking about getting married, now it's not about what makes me happy, but who could help me fulfill the purpose of God. And what it does is, is it removes the idea of marriage from this self-obsessed thing, like please me, fulfill me, right, complete me, to an outward focus of marriage, which then leads to a happier, more fulfilled marriage. When we're not self-obsessing about ourselves in marriage and thinking that marriage is going to be something that like fulfills me and completes me, but it's something that God is going to use and I get to be a part of to complete his work. Now, instead of being self-obsessed, I'm outward focused. And that's what actually leads to a, a more fulfilled marriage, a more satisfied marriage, a more happier marriage. So that first thing, that first biblical reason we see is helper. The next biblical reason we see for marriage is procreation. I think this one is fairly obvious, but we also see it in Genesis and there's actually a blessing with it. And so what we see in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth say this week I'm going dip netting I'm going to try to rule those fish of the sea right we see in this moment 
man and woman come together in marriage, and the first thing we see God blesses them, commands them, be fruitful and multiply. One of the next purposes we see is procreation. And, and it's interesting, as, as I was reading through this, it's this, this kind of weird, like it hit me kind of weird, like there's a command to fill the earth. There's this command to multiply, and I'm like, why is that? Why is there a command to do this? There's a blessing, and it's not like God said, hey, now, now you guys can have kids if you want. Now you're legally married, you, you, can, you can have kids, you know, do it, don't do it, whatever, but it's available to you now. No, there's like this command to be fruitful and multiply. And as I was pondering this and thinking of this, just really praying over this, because like there has to be a reason for this. What I realized is this is what we see in Genesis 1 is that man is created in the image of God. We just actually, and then we see it again in Genesis 2. We just read it. So God created man in his own image. And that we believe that every human being, every human being bears the image of God. So when God says be fruitful and multiply, what he's telling us to do is to fill the earth with his image. Fill the earth with my image and do my work. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it that way. See, do you realize, I don't know if you've ever realized this before, but when you read scripture, and every instant of God moving in earth, moving his mission forward, his will forward, every instance but one, God moves through humanity. Every time, God works through humanity. The only time he doesn't is when there was no humanity. At the very beginning. After God creates man in his image, he uses his image to fulfill his purpose in earth. And so when God is saying, be fruitful and fill the earth, what he's saying is fill the earth with my image and do my work. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I, I have to stop right here and say this, that I very well understand that there are couples, married couples, who cannot have children. And that is a real thing, and it's a real sorrow, and it's a real burden. And I want, I want you to hear me very clearly. It does not mean you are not fulfilling God's purpose in your marriage. Don't ever carry that burden. Don't ever carry that lie. Don't ever carry that shame, because that is not true at all. And there, there is so many purposes for marriage, and this is not the only one. It's a purpose but carrying that burden is painful. I know my wife and I, while we were able to have kids, we walked through the pain of miscarriages first. And it is so painful. And I just want you to hear that God, he is with you. He is holding you. And there is nothing, no shame, no reason to think that your marriage is not fulfilling God's purpose. So please do not carry that. The next biblical reason we see for marriage is intimacy and oneness. Genesis 1, 24 and 25. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. They become one flesh. Both man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Right? This idea of intimacy and oneness. Genesis 1, 24, it, it's, it's oneness, right? They become one flesh. They become two, become one. And in that, there is deep intimacy. 
I love what uh, Matt Chandler says. He, he calls this idea of, of through sex that souls come together. He calls it the mingling of souls. And it is why sex is designed for marriage is because literally it's your souls mingling together. And in that there is a unique and special intimacy. And in that two people become one and I love this, this, uh, this quote from the book, The Meaning of Marriage. It's from Tim and Kathy Keller. And this is what they say. They say, sexual intimacy within a marriage is designed to serve God by building a relationship of God-honoring delight and faithfulness. An intimacy that portrays the eschatological uh, intimacy that the whole church of Christ will enjoy with Christ, her bridegroom. It would be hard to imagine a higher calling for couples to embark upon in marriage. It's this idea of intimacy and oneness. Uh, an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, is, is built around this idea of intimacy and oneness in marriage. And finally, the last biblical reason we're going to talk about today for marriage is the, it's the example of Christ in the church. And this comes directly from Ephesians chapter 5. And this is what Paul writes. He says, for this reason, again, he's quoting back to Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Then Paul goes on to say, this mystery is profound. What I'm talking about, Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. It's this idea that marriage is supposed to be this, this beacon to the world, that shows what Christ's love looks like. It's sacrificial. It lays itself down. It puts the church up. He died for the church so that she could be restored back to him. There's intimacy. There's oneness. And Paul's saying, look, this is literally designed by God to show the world Christ's love. In fact, the fact that Jesus came to earth and died for his people and now is redeeming the church as his bride back to him is the very thing that gives marriage its meaning. John Piper says it this way. He says, the coming of Jesus is what gives meaning to marriage. In Ephesians 5, this mystery is set in place before Jesus came to earth, before the church was redeemed. At the beginning of creation, God instituted marriage to be the example and the expression of Jesus' love and sacrifice for his bride. His church. The purpose of marriage is not your happiness, your fulfillment, or your satisfaction. The purpose of marriage from the beginning of time was to tell the world the love and sacrifice of God for his people. The coming of Jesus in the mind of God was used at the very beginning to give meaning to marriage. So in other words, what he's saying, when God joined together man and woman in marriage, he is thinking thousands of years ahead of Jesus coming and dying for his people. And at the very beginning, he's saying, this is a foreshadowing of what is to come. This is why I'm instituting this. And so marriage is designed, again, to be an example of Christ's love for the church. So that, these are, these are a couple biblical reasons that we see the purpose of marriages. And when you think about these things, what ends up happening is we get a better foundation for marriage a better understanding of why it's important and why it's not just something we can 
wander in and out of it. It wasn't designed for that, but it was designed to be something that lasts forever, to be this example. So then we go back to the scriptures. Go back to Corinthians. In chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says this, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul says, not I, but the Lord. Right? He's, he's trying to be very clear. I'm not making this stuff up, guys. This is what the Lord commands. And, and probably, Paul's thinking about, back to the words of Jesus. Now, I know Paul was an, probably an enemy of Jesus at the time when Jesus was speaking, but Paul was also discipled by the disciples. And, and, and he had this supernatural encounter with Jesus when Jesus reveals all these truths to him. But I believe that Paul's going back to when Jesus is talking to these Pharisees. And we, we read about it in Matthew 19. And this is this encounter when these Pharisees come to Jesus and they're asking him if divorce is okay. Some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, this is Jesus, he replied, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, to, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees chime in. Why then, they asked, did Moses give a command that a man leave his, uh, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because you, your hearts were hard. But this, it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I love this part. His disciples say to him, if relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Like, like, like Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the disciples in the background, and, and Jesus basically says, yeah, you're, you should not divorce your wife. Like, this is not this way. It hasn't been this way from the beginning. Don't do it. And the disciples are like, are you serious, Clark? Like, what? We, we just can't get divorced if we want to? For any and every reason? They, they had been taught this, the disciples. The d- Jewish culture was a culture of divorce. It just gives a certificate. It's in the law. Moses permits it. He co- Why does Moses command that we just give her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way? Jesus is like, no, 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 he didn't command it. You guys missed it. He permitted it because your hearts were hard. But what's happening is the disciples are, are catching the vision of marriage. Wait, it's forever? Like forever, ever? Right, like, what? In fact, that, that there was... There were, there were great rabbis that were going around teaching different things of law. And, and there was this great rabbi who, who had this huge following, and his name was Hillel. And Hillel would go around and teach that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, even, hear me out, if she burns the soup. Permissible. Permissible. Don't burn the soup, ladies. Right? Like, this was a teaching to the Jewish people at the time. So when they're hearing this, the disciples are like, wait, that is not what I have been taught. And Jesus, what he's doing, is he's raising the bar. I love this. <clears throat> Jesus quotes scripture. He quotes God when he says, and for this reason a, fa- uh, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, two will become one flesh. And then Jesus adds to it. 
He adds, maybe you've heard this before at a wedding. I just said it last night. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, what Jesus is doing, he's raising the bar. He's always doing this. He's raising the bar. But he's not just raising the bar for the sake of raising the bar. What he's doing is he's raising it back to its original intent. You go, guys, this is what it's about. Marriage is serious, and it's intended to last forever. And so the question is, what does that mean for us? today. See, Jesus says, look, the reason you guys are getting divorced, he's talking to the Pharisees now, the reason you're getting divorced is because of hard-heartedness. Why did Moses allow divorce? Not, not command, but permit, because your hearts were hard. And I would say it is still true today. The reason divorce happens is because of hard-heartedness. It is the reason the divorce happens. At the end of the day, all, all the things that lead up to it, at the end of the day, it's hard-heartedness that leads to divorce. And it, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's not the way it should be. And so the question is, is it ever okay to get divorced? Is it ever okay to get divorced? I am quickly running out of time here. I want, I want to take a look at Scripture because I try to base... I, I do my best to base all of these conversations, all these thoughts on these things on, on Scripture. Not what does culture say, not what is just feels the best, what is feels most kind in the situation, but what does Scripture say about this? And when we look at Scripture, we see kind of two reasons, at least in the New Testament, we see kind of two reasons why we, we could see that divorce could be permitted. And we read both of them already this morning. The first one's in Matthew 19, 9, and Jesus says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. And the second one is in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. But, who, uh, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother and sister is not bound in such a case. So the two like biblical reasons, we're just calling them biblical reasons for divorce, that's kind of the popular vernacular today, to biblical reasons for divorce that we see is uh, sexual immorality and abandonment. Sexual immorality and abandonment. Uh, these are known as exemption clauses, people like to call them that. Like, uh, you should not get divorced except for these two reasons. But what we need to understand, just like Jesus talked about in Matthew 19, the exemption clauses are permissible, they're not prescriptive when it comes to divorce and marriage. The exemption clauses are permissible, but they're not prescriptive. In other words, if, uh, if sexual immorality happens in a marriage or abandonment happens in a marriage, it's not just now you're prescribed, okay, now you need to divorce them. Like this happens, now you divorce them. That's, that's the prescription for what happened in your situation. And the reality is, I've known many, many people, many situations where these things have happened. Where, where, where an affair has happened in a marriage, and God works in the hearts of the people and restores people back together. Restores a husband and wife back together. See, I would say the number one goal when one of these things happens, or both of these things happen, the, no, the first goal is Restoration. The first goal is, is, is restoration. That is God's heart. God, our God is a God of restoration. He's a God who restores the broken. 
and, and we need restoration. Like, the reason Jesus came is because there's brokenness in our lives. If we didn't have any brokenness, we wouldn't need a redeemer. But what does a redeemer do? He redeems the broken. And so that is the first goal. That is the heart of God is that restoration would happen. And what I find happens often is when a marriage gets rough and when it gets rocky and maybe there's unfaithfulness, maybe there's this abandonment. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about what abandonment is in just a minute. But when these things happen, what, what, what can happen is we, we kind of become lawyers, right, with the word of God. And if you find yourself being a lawyer with the words of Jesus, you're, you are missing the point. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, you hear, well, technically, right, technically in this situation, this happens, so now I can get divorced. Right, where, where you have not been pouring into the marriage either for years, you've, you're, you're not happy for your own reasons, and now you're just kind of looking for a way out. Technically, sounds like my children. Dad, technically you said this, so now I can stay up all night. Like, no. But we become lawyers with the words of Jesus, and we're looking for loopholes. And if you find yourself looking for the loopholes, I would say you're probably not looking for restoration. I've actually, it, it breaks my heart, but I've, I've, I've heard people talk and I've been in instances where, where one spouse is literally hoping and praying that their spouse would have an affair with sin so that they could get out of the marriage. They're like, well, I know what's happening. I just can't prove it yet, but I just know what's happening, so I just hope I can catch them, because then I can catch them in the act, and then I can get this, this, this biblical divorce, and I'm out scot-free. Any Christian philosophy that causes you to wish the other person would sin is a complete misunderstanding of the Scriptures. And I would say a complete gross misunderstanding of the Scriptures. Our our. our dream our vision our hope is not like oh that day i could catch them screwing up because now i have the i have the high ground i have the upper hand i have the moral high ground to walk on and i can walk out of this marriage scot-free and feel totally fine with it because it's their fault and again i ask are you looking for the loopholes are you trying to be a lawyer with the words of jesus so yes we do see that divorce is permissible in scripture we do see it is it is permissible in scripture and we see it several different times and 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 what you call a biblical divorce yes it happens it breaks the heart of jesus it breaks god's heart um but sometimes it is necessary too i'm not going to say that it's never you know not necessary that yes why we try to go after restoration sometimes the other person doesn't want to walk towards restoration it really does take two people to move towards restoration. And that doesn't always happen. And so, yes, divorce is permissible in Scripture. And so you, you need to hear that and know that and understand that. But I want to I get into, just real quick, like some practical situations, some practical scenarios. Because... That sounds good on paper, Josh, but my situation is unique. My situation is maybe a little different. Or what about this or what about that? And we can get into the weeds for hours, days. We could talk through the weeds. But I want to talk about one thing specifically because I, I get this question a lot. And the question is about abuse. Josh, what about abuse? 
you just stood up there and said there's basically two reasons for a, a, a biblical permission for divorce, and those two reasons are uh, sexual immorality and abandonment. I didn't hear abuse in there. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of church leaders that would say, no, abuse isn't in there, and abuse is not a reason for divorce. But I would strongly disagree. And I think you actually do see abuse in both of those situations, sexual immorality and in abandonment. See, for, for them, abandonment meant that when Paul says, when, you, when you're abandoned, let him go, what that re- literally means is you have to understand their culture at the time, like, like uh, especially for a woman, the marriage was like their security. Like, women didn't have part-time jobs on the side. Women didn't, you know, have their, their little Instagram business going on. Right, women didn't, they didn't go get jobs for the most part. Like, th- their, their livelihood was attached to their husband. And if their husband cut them off, they, they had no more livelihood. Like, they had no way really to survive. The, the, there was no moving back in with mom and dad. And so this, this idea of abandonment was, like, your husband's no longer protecting you. He's no longer uh, uh, serving you. He's no longer providing for you. And I would say that if abuse is happening in a relationship, that's exactly what's going on. That the spouse, whether male or female, whether husband or wife, that the protection is no longer happening. Right? Support is no longer happening. Provision is no longer happening. That abuse is abandonment. I think it's very easy to go there. And even in sexual immorality, what is sexual immorality? Why is it such a big deal? It's because two people are one flesh, and now that is being broken apart. That's why the sexual immorality is such a big deal. It's because it's the breaking apart of one flesh. And God is very big on the two becoming one. And so I would say that, yes, abuse is also the breaking apart of one flesh. Paul talks about in Ephesians. He says, like husbands, love your wives like you love your own body. Like you take care of your body, take care of your wives. And so abuse is like not taking care of your spouse. And so I would say abuse lands in both of those camps. So yes, Abuse is a, a permissible reason for divorce. But what is abuse? What is abuse? I, I actually sat down with a therapist this week because I was like, I, w- I want to be able to speak to this intelligently and, 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 and with um, understanding. And, and, and I know it's a very delicate, delicate thing. But I said, what is abuse? Like, is it abuse if... Like, I'm, my wife gets together with her girlfriends, and every time she gets together with her girlfriends, all she does is talk about what a loser her husband is. Like, that's emotional abuse, right? Eh. You know, my husband uh, emotionally abuses me because he says he hates my cooking and wishes I cooked more like his mother. Right? Like, we can kind of go, that, that, that hurts my feelings, that's, a, that's abuse. And this is what my uh, therapist friend said. They said, abuse is this. Abuse is the intent to dominate through power and control. That is abuse. The intent to dominate through power and control. And so, I just throw that out there to, to kind of work through those things, those thoughts, those understandings. Like, is, is abuse happening? Is there intent to control with, with, with power? And, and life is messy. And life can be confusing. And I do want to say this, please, look at me, everybody, for a moment. If you're online, just kind of stop what you're doing. 
zero in for like the next 30 seconds. If abuse is happening, physical, emotional, sexual, because even in marriage there can be sexual abuse. If it's happening, your responsibility is to get to safety. Your responsibility is to be safe. Your responsibility is if you have children, for you and your children to be safe. That is your first and primary responsibility. And it is your responsibility to do it and to walk into it with no shame and no guilt. Do not carry shame and do not carry guilt because that does not come from Jesus. If you are walking or getting away from a situation for safety of you and safety of your children. Don't ever let anyone tell you, no, you got to stay right where you're at and take the abuse. I've, I've heard it before, even from church leaders, like, Jesus laid down his life, like, you need to lay down your life and just take that abuse. No, that is unbiblical, untrue, and, and, and you need to get to safety, and you need to do it with no shame and no guilt. From that moment on, I would say this, though. From, 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 from any situation of why you would get to divorced is, is your knee-jerk reaction to look towards restoration. Is it to look to restoration? I would encourage you, even in the whole, most horrible situations, to at least let that be a thought in your mind. And again, restoration does not mean, man, we gotta get back together tomorrow. Like separation in a marriage, I think, is, can be a very good thing guided through counselors, guided through like people who are walking with you. Like sometimes separation needs to happen, that's a good thing. But again, restoration doesn't always happen. It doesn't, we're, we're broken people who are sinful and, and sometimes we just walk away from the beauty that God calls us into. And if, if someone's walking away, there's not really a, an opportunity for restoration, but is it at least in the forefront of your mind? And to wrap up really quick here, but what about remarriage? Divorce happens. What about remarriage? Remarriage is, I'm not gonna lie, it's kind of tricky. Because there's, there's actually two very prominent kind of schools of thought on it. There's two biblical camps where, where, where people land. I wanna share both of them with you very quickly. The first one is this, is that remarriage is never permissible in a divorce for, for, for a believer. That remarriage is never permissible, but there's a reason for it. I wanna, and and the, the funny thing here is, in this section of scripture, in 1 Corinthians, we actually see both of the schools of thought, both of the camps in one little passage right here. So the first thought is this. It says, he says, to the, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. The reason that um, remarriage in, in one of the camps is not permissible is because for, that there's a hope of reconciliation. There's a hope of restoration. Like if you get remarried, there's like no more chance of restoration. And so the, the reason behind is actually, it's twofold, it's, it is that two become one flesh and, and, and so you are already one flesh with them and so now the, the goal is restoration Okay, and so that, that's one camp of where a, a lot of scholars land on biblical remarriage. Like, is it ever permissible? The second one is in this camp. But if the unbeliever leaves 
let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such a case. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. We also go back to when Jesus, a lot of people go back to this idea of Jesus says, look, it, it's, it's a sin. You cause uh, adultery if you marry a, 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 a divorced woman, except in the case of sexual morality. And so those are the kind of the two places where people land, except for the cases if there's sexual immorality involved or there's abandonment involved, then uh, remarriage is permissible in, in a biblical sense. But either way, no matter where you land, in both camps, there is pretty tight stipulations, right? It's not this idea of like, oh yeah, just remarriage, no big deal. You divorce, you get remarried, you get divorced, you get remarried, you keep, keep working at it until you just really find that one that completes you. And, and to be honest, this was kind of the Jewish way of doing it. Ah, she burned my soup. She's not a good cook. I'm out. Let's find somebody else, right? And so Jesus is, is, is showing us, no, no, A, marriage is meant to be forever. But B, remarriage, is it even an option? And so there's these two camps that you can land in. And I'm going to say this to you today. If you're divorced and you're thinking about remarriage, my advice to you, and I just even had this conversation just a little bit ago, my advice to you is, is to study the scripture and just pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would guide you. There, there, there's two very strong arguments for both camps. And, and, and personally, I'm still wrestling through where, where I land on them because I could go, man, yes and yes. And just seek God. Don't Try not to seek, well, this is what I want. This is what would feel good. This, is, this fits my agenda, but just seek God. But the question is, but now what? Right now what? Now I, maybe I got divorced and it kind of was my fault. It wasn't a biblical reason for divorce and I got divorced. Man, I got divorced and remarried and it didn't fall under neither one of those. Man, I've been divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. Now what? See, it's not about trying to lower the bar to make ourselves feel better about our situations. We want to live for God. We have become lawyers trying to technically make our situations fit within the rules that God has laid out. But it's not about technicalities. It's not about rules. It's not about trying to live for ourselves. It's trying not to make ourselves right. It's about trying to make ourselves holy in every situation, in every moment. And the reality is we can't be holy. We can't earn holy. We can't do holy. We can only receive holiness from God. It's about throwing ourselves before the feet of Jesus Striving for humbleness, striving for brokenness, striving for humility, striving for sorrow over our sins. It's about repenting over our sins, receiving love and mercy and the grace of Jesus, and then living every day in the light of reality of that grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Josh, I, I got divorced, and, and it was my fault. Man, there is grace over you in your life. Yeah, I, I, got, I got remarried, and man, I, I'm kind of feeling a little conviction that maybe I shouldn't have gotten remarried. The, the, the situations didn't seem to line up with what you're just talking about. There is grace and mercy from Jesus over your life. 
man, I was the abuser, and I'm trying to follow Jesus now. And there's grace and mercy over your life. My marriage is struggling. I, today, I'm sitting here right now in this moment, in this church, online right now, and, and we're seriously considering divorce. Getting divorced, there is grace and mercy in your life through the blood of Jesus. You need to understand there is grace and mercy in your life through the blood of Jesus. And, and I want to just end with this kind of practical thing, like, okay, so I've been divorced and remarried and does that mean now like if my remarriage wasn't like a biblical remarriage I need to get divorced again no absolutely not absolutely not people ask this question what we see in scripture is that God commands us to honor our vows you have made new vows honor those vows work hard in creating a biblical marriage a marriage that is about coming together to do the work of God Right? A marriage is about one, a marriage that is about showing the world the love of Jesus. And walk freely and with no shame in the blood of Jesus. And maybe, maybe you do need to repent if you're feeling conviction. Like, Josh, that was 20 years ago. Okay. If you've never repented over it, just sit down and repent for this moment. And then move forward in the freedom and the love in the blood of Jesus with no shame, with no chains, showing the world the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for marriage. God, we thank you that you designed it, you gave it to us as a gift. God, that you made it purposeful. You gave it meaning. Jesus, forgive us for our hard-heartedness because the reality is, the truth is, Every one of us is hard-hearted. Every single one of us is selfish. Every single one of us has done things in relationship, whether marriage or, 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 or any other relationship, that has damaged relationship. And you are a God of relationship. Jesus, I just pray that right now in this room, people watching online, God, that you would heal our hearts God, that you would heal our marriages. God, and just like the video that we saw today, that we would walk in forgiveness. We would walk in compassion, God. In instances where marriages have been broken up, that we would not live in the past, but move forward to your glory, God. We love you, Jesus. Give us the strength to do this, because we don't have the strength, God. It comes from you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for watching this message from ACF Church. Uh, we hope it's encouraged you and challenged you to be more like Jesus and to walk with him in a closer and more profound way. If you'd like to give to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so at the link on the screen or at acfak.org. We love you and we'll see you next week.